This episode of the Untold Stories of Open Source is supported by the Linux Foundation's Training and Certification Program, which offers more than 50 free courses. Check out courses related to system administration, engineering, cloud, DevOps, security, and more by going to training.linuxfoundation.org. Select resources, then free courses to browse and register for your free training. The Linux Foundation's Training and Certification Program is here to support your career growth. Brian Bellendorf came from a science and technology background. In fact, his parents met at IBM, where his father was a COBOL programmer. During the 1980s, Brian was comfortable in front of a TRS-80 and a PC Junior doing basic programming and term reports. He didn't really consider a career in computing, partly because... You know, COBOL programming in basements kind of looked about as exciting as accounting or, or, or you know, other, other, um, other kinds of endeavors. So I was thinking about physics or computer science, but, but actually um, when I arrived at Berkeley, one of the first things you got on freshman day, even in fall of 1991, was an email address. An email address? That was a revelation to Brian. I'd heard about that. I'd certainly seen BBSs. I wasn't a big BBSer growing up. I had a Prodigy account, but like, okay, cool. So you have this email address and at no friction, you can write to people on the other side of the planet, right? At no friction, you could um, not just use it for work and school, but use it for social pursuits as well. He quickly found his way onto Usenet and participation on mailing lists around the band REM or the record label 4AD. This eventually turned into a dedicated mailing list focused on the rave scene in San Francisco. Through setting up the mailing list, he stood up an FTP server with DJ sets, which eventually became a Gopher server, which eventually became a web server that was dedicated to electronic music and the electronic music scene in the Bay Area. And without any goal of like, you know, advertising, it wasn't any advertising at the time, but, but with the goal of just getting information out there. This was a time when you would only hear electronic music at certain events and not on the radio. Brian continued to go to school at UC Berkeley occasionally, but in January 1993, something else caught his attention. The first issue of Wired Magazine was published. From the Linux Foundation offices in New York City, this is the Untold Stories of Open Source. I'm Mark Miller. Each week in our podcast project on GitHub, we uncover the history and people behind the open source projects that are the foundation of technological innovation. If you work with open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. Wired Magazine's first issue was published on January 2nd, 1993. That's about the same time Whitney Houston was telling me she would always love me on every radio station on the planet, and Duran Duran's Ordinary World was climbing the charts with a bullet. For you Dallas Cowboy fans, Dallas kicked the crap out of the Buffalo Bills 52-17 in Super Bowl 27, <laughs> but I digress. During this time of historical digital transition, Brian Bellendorf was starting to build a following for his electronic music and rave scene mailing list. 
while I'm kind of falling into this and then occasionally nominally <laughs> going to school, right? Eventually switching to computer science. Um, this magazine came out called Wired. The first, right at the beginning of 93, I think the first issue came out, maybe it was even fall of 92, um, and discovered that one of the people I'd made friends with uh, through kind of my interest in electronic music and the, the scene in San Francisco, a guy named Jonathan Nelson, uh, I just started working there uh, to try to help them get what to get wired wired, basically. Up to that point, Wired was a newsletter, as analog as the New York Times, even though it was covering the digital revolution. Jonathan knew about the electronic music website Brian had set up, the mailing list, and the community he had built. He was like, I'm thinking we might need something like that over at Wired. Do you want to come hang out? And so for about $100 a week, I think was my original pay, um, I kind of uh, hung out at the loft at 2nd and, and uh, South Park that Wired was started, putting up initially just back issues of the magazine in black text on a gray background, because this was before the web had had, had a, a, you know, a whole lot of the graphic design it has now, um, uh, and making that available. Making the jump to Wired made Brian feel as if he were doing God's work by expanding the readership beyond those who could afford to buy the magazine. He became the chief engineer behind the magazine's presence online, but also began creating content that could uniquely be produced for the web. That was the launch of a project called Hotwired. It was the first ad-supported website online. So I like to joke with people that I put the first ad banner online and I've been apologizing for it ever since. What was needed was a business model. It was 1994, and the team needed to figure out how to turn this idea into something self-sustaining rather than just an oddball website. They needed to find a way to get the community to be a core part of that project. Brian continued to consider different uses for the magazine solution he was helping to build. He had the realization that the web experience he was creating for the magazine industry might make sense for book publishers, too. Maybe someday down the road it would be possible to download books and actually read them online rather than buy them. A group of people close to Wired formed one of the first website design companies, Organic Online. As it turned out, the book publishers and record labels didn't have a lot of money to invest in online experiments. The ones who did have the money, though, were brand companies, especially those looking to advertise on Hotwired. In early 1995, at the ripe old age of 22, Brian left Wired to become co-founder and CTO for Organic. The company took advantage of the idea that you couldn't buy an ad on Hotwired and not point to something. Those destination points all needed websites. Organic built five of the seven websites for the first advertisers on Hotwired. These were big brand sites like Club Med, Volvo, and Saturn Cars. They went on to build sites for Levi's, Nike, and other big brand customers. It was an interesting time for web designers. And in fact, when we launched Hotwired, we based, what should the width of the first ad banner be? We based that largely upon the default width of the first Mac Mosaic uh, client. When you open the window in Mac Mosaic, <laughs> how wide is that? Okay, that's probably something people won't change very much. Let's use that as the default width, a couple hundred pixels, a 320 or something. Um, At Wired and all of the organic websites, the sites were using a web server that was built by student developers at the University of Illinois in the same lab NCSA, that put out the Mosaic browser. This was the NCSA HTTPD. 
It was seen as internet software, and internet software almost always came with source code, with the implied proviso to use at your own risk. This was long before the term open source had been coined. Participating in the source code culture came with a set of unwritten rules. And by the way, if you find a bug, you're kind of morally obligated to let people know about it, you know, upstream. And, you know, if you, if you have any chops at all, you should probably think about when you report the bug, not only reporting, reporting it, but also how you might fix it, right? Now, the fact is you had the source code, you could fix it for yourself, and that was tremendously cool. But not just fixing it for yourself, you, you know, you should, you, should, you should submit that upstream so everyone else could benefit from that extra little bit of work you did. Contributions to projects like this were just considered part of the culture. As Brian and his peers were making contributions to the project, a group of students started to work on the NCSA web server using those contributions. The student developers were led by Rob McCool. Not only did he have a cool name, he was a respected developer. Early in 95, McCool sent an email out to the list saying, Hey guys, uh, all of us just got snapped up by this new startup in Silicon Valley called Netscape. We're all going to go work there. Um, and this kind of student project, we're not quite sure where it's going to go. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, you're, you're all using it, which is great. The, the software license on it was public, you know, essentially public domain, use at your own risk. Um, uh, but, uh, but don't expect support from, from the student developers going forward. The users of the project included Organic Online, Wired, Research Labs, and other ISPs, universities, and other types of organizations. They collectively agreed they could support themselves without help as the student developers were leaving the project. Kind of all looked collectively at each other and went, well, okay, I guess we can support ourselves with this, I guess. Um, you know, uh, uh, if we just kind of share around the responsibilities of rolling a release and sweeping up all the contributed patches that were sent to the email list over the last few months uh, or last few weeks, then, then we can progressively put out kind of updated versions of this code. Um, that was when we decided it might be wise to change the name since it was, wasn't NCSA putting this out, but kind of this new amorphous group of users supporting each other. Um, uh, and because it was a collection of patches, we thought it'd be worth calling, a, a, calling it a, 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 the Apache web server. The name was out of deference and not wanting to be seen as just another cyber this or spider that. They wanted a name to stand out from the crowd of software that was being created at the time. The team noticed that the server was a whole bunch of patches, so agreed to call it the Apache server. It turned out to be a good pun. That was in 1995. In 2019, Sumo Logic estimated that the Apache HTTP server ran over 67% of all web servers in the world. By 1997, O'Reilly Publishing had built up the reputation as the publisher for technical books. If you didn't have a few O'Reilly books on your shelf, you probably weren't part of the growing community of developers who were using free software. As the term free software started to emerge, O'Reilly realized they were the ones most closely associated with many of the software packages being created and was providing reference books on how to use that software. As an extension of their book promotions, 
They convened their first Pearl Conference, which started their movement into conference production for the major topics their books covered. In 1998, the term open-source software was the output of a series of meetings with people such as Brian Bellendorf, Michael Tyman, Todd Anderson, Mark S. Miller, K. Ping Yi, and others. In a 2018 article written for opensource.com, Peterson describes how she coined the term open-source software. From Christine Peterson. Between meetings that week, I was still focused on the need for a better name and came up with the term open-source software. While not ideal, it struck me as good enough. I ran it by at least four others. Eric Drexler, Mark Miller, and Todd Anderson liked it, while a friend in marketing and public relations felt the term open had been overused and abused and believed we could do better. He was right in theory. However, I didn't have a better idea, so I thought I would try to go ahead and introduce it. In hindsight, I should have simply proposed it to Eric Raymond, but I didn't know him well at the time, and so I took an indirect strategy instead. A link to Christine's article is in the resources for this episode and makes for a very interesting reading from someone who was directly involved with the creation of this new term, open source software. So in 1998, the term open source was coined. The Open Source Foundation was created, and Tim O'Reilly started to then use the term open source to describe the conferences he was to produce for the next 20 years. Brian Bellendorf struck up a friendship with Tim. And yeah, it was, uh, I, and, and so I, I just struck up a friendship with him on that front. And as I was starting to um, put some new ideas together around kind of the thing I could do after organic, um, uh, you know, he was a real good sounding board and then even uh, provided a home to kind of incubate these ideas mm -hmm. at a time when there wasn't really incubators, accelerators, the kind of infrastructure you have today for entrepreneurs with good ideas. How important was Larry and Pearl to this movement, because it seemed like that's a lot of what Tim was pushing at that time. Well, Pearl was obviously the, the language that um, so much of the early part of both the web and Unix culture was built around. I mean, yeah, sure, there was C programming and obviously a lot of the core um, uh, of, of Linux and other Unix operating systems was C, C++. There have always been other languages, but this was still very early days for something like Python. Um, Java obviously was was kind of around, but wasn't seen as a systems programming language as much as a as, a, as an applet programming language in those early days. Um, uh, although that certainly grew kind of by the late 90s. Um, but Perl was kind of, uh, uh, for those who went through the 90s, you know, as the early part of their career, uh, perhaps the first language that they really, you know, dreamed in and, and automated a lot of things. It's not the kind of thing you'd write. I mean, some people, I think somebody wrote a web browser in Perl at one point, but, you know, you wouldn't write a lot of serious apps in it, but you do a whole lot of automation, a whole lot of backend, a whole lot of systems, you know, glue, gluing of things together, which uh, um, uh, was so important. And so, um, and, and, and Larry himself, Larry Wall, uh, who's the founder of, of um, the Pearl environment and, and kind of the one of the inspirations for a certain mode of 
community management in open source projects called the BDFL or Benevolent Dictator for Life. Um, really also came to personify what some people saw as the um, the right way to, to um, accept such a critical role, which is he's very humble, very self-effacing, uh, very humorous, uh, um, very open-minded. You know, in fact, the motto of Pearl is there's always more than one way to do it. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's other leaders who've had that um, Although not all open source leaders were anywhere, you know, um, near as humble as he, uh, I, and uh, um, he's just very easy to get along with, and and I think built a culture around Pearl that attracted a lot of people both to Pearl and to open source in general as a as a welcoming environment, as a benign environment. You know, even if we don't meet each other face to face, we can still collaborate, build something cool, and kind of enjoy and respect the other people we're doing it with. In between organic online and pivoting into the 2000s, Brian's relationship with Tim O'Reilly continued to grow. With O'Reilly's help, he launched a new company, CollabNet. In between um, organic uh, and and uh, uh, kind of pivoting into the 2000s, uh, I, with a, with Tim O'Reilly's help, uh, launched a company called CollabNet uh, that was <laughs> these days I characterize it as GitHub, but two or three generations too early, um, which is the same as being wrong or mistiming the market, you know. Uh, but, so trying to be humble about that. But but the idea was take the tools uh, that are used by open source developers, which were very ad hoc and very you know, cobbled together and actually was what I was doing with Apache was uh, not spending a lot of time writing code, but spending a lot of time on systems administration, uh, uh, keeping the, the mail server humming, um, finding automated ways to support new projects coming into the Apache Software Foundation, um, as well as thinking about the governance and, and um, setting up that up as a proper nonprofit, uh, but, but also just scalability of open source communities. Um, Brian started CollabNet on the premise that if someone is doing something multiple times, there must be value in the repetition, and not just for Apache. If other open source projects, such as the Python Software Foundation or Mozilla, which had recently launched, others might want the same kind of infrastructure there should be somebody to provide that. Um, uh, and if this infrastructure is valuable to um, fully nonprofit open source projects, it probably is also valuable to enterprises, you know, that are starting to learn how you can collaborate online, how open source communities represent kind of the shining example of that, but might even, you know, bear fruit for private collaboration between enterprises. There were other things CollabNet tried to do, but it finally came down to the basics of software development infrastructure based on top of a mailing list and subversion, which drove the development of bug databases. In retrospect, Brian realizes that when starting too early or being the first with a new idea, a company is often defined by its first set of customers. Um, and uh, sometimes that's not really the the, the model uh, for going after the fully, uh, you know, total addressable market. So uh, CollabNet's still around. Um, uh, still, uh, I think it's been woven into a couple and acquired by a couple other companies by this point. But um, but it was really a lesson in, in trying to figure out what are the parts of how the open source community works that are actually appropriate to commercialize or appropriate to build a sustainable business around. Um, and, and actually so much of what 
what we wanted to do in a startup for-profit context with CollabNet is very much what the Linux Foundation is doing today in terms of repeatedly building open source communities, applying just enough governance and just enough tooling and just enough community management uh, and all that to uh, uh, support you know, the development of, of projects in all sorts of different domains. And so in some ways, what we're doing today at Collab is like the nonprofit version of what I started CollabNet 22, three years ago to go off and do. It's hard to maintain focus and enthusiasm as a project grows and the years pass. Brian stepped away from CollabNet after eight years. Um, I petered out from that after about eight years. I probably stuck around a little bit longer, but just as a founder, I felt a sense of commitment to to the other employees uh, and and the like. Um, and I was maybe a little too comfortable there as well. I probably should have should have challenged my own self by by breaking away earlier. He finally broke away in 2006, traveling throughout South Africa and Europe, speaking about open source code and meeting with open source communities. He was looking at where things were headed, especially in the international arena, and immersed himself in the Open MRS project, where he built a medical record system for the government of Rwanda. That code is now in use in many other countries as open source has proliferated. struggling a bit with that. And then towards the end of 2007, I saw a, uh, a certain politician speak uh, um, uh, who you know, turned out later was going to be running for, for president, but I think that was still just like a hint, um, who was talking very cogently about the use of technology as a way to simply make government more efficient simply make government more effective. You know, if it's going to, if you're at, whether you are believe in big government or small government, if you ask it to do a thing, it should be using open technology. Well, it should be using technology to do that thing competently to get the most bang for the buck. Um, and uh, I, and and government was just rife, and it still is. But it, but but you know, even back then, we realized uh, government programs were famous for wasting a whole lot of money and getting a whole lot of inferior technology out of it. And so, you know, and I kind of felt like open source software could be a means to making the use of technology more impactful or more effective by government agencies. Um, but I didn't quite know where to map that against. The politician so. Brian saw speak. That was Barack Obama. Brian started looking at his personal network of people and began to recognize the people who were in his orbit and who were also in Obama's orbit. In 2008, he became an advisor to the Obama campaign and worked on a number of policies which touched on open source and some of which touched on open data. His work brought him in contact with Beth Novak, now professor and director at the GovLab. Uh, Obama appointed her as the first deputy CTO at the White House before he even appointed a CTO. Um, and she and I, during the campaign, wrote a document that became his first executive order, uh, which was uh, called the Open Government Directive. Uh, and this was to uh, charter the executive branch uh, agencies to come up with a plan to make their activities more participatory, collaborative, and transparent. Um, and so when uh, um, the new administration started, 
I kind of took the, 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 the interregnum off after the election uh, and kind of uh, kicked back my heels. And then in that first week uh, uh, of, the, of the new administration, Beth calls me and says, um, hey, we've got a, a mandate now to do something. No funds, but a mandate. Uh, and, um, you know, could you help uh, come in and do that? Brian worked at the Office of Science and Technology Policy under NOVEC for the first nine months in 2009. He discovered that open source software as a policy lever still was going to be a bit of a stretch. Brainstorm sessions with Anish Chopra, the first chief technology officer of the United States, helped define places in the government where there might be a more direct map for acceptance of the open source concept. They found that at HHS, there was a project to use open source software to accelerate the adoption of open standards for the sharing of medical records between institutions. There was something called the DIRECT project. He worked on the project through 2010, expanding that in similar programs. Most of his meetings at the OSTP were not about the open government plan. They were about helping agencies up-level on technology. What was the first thing they should do? Have a CTO have a series of CIOs to report to the federal CIO, common policies, and using procurement as a vehicle for being smarter about what was selected. What helped was this grounding of pragmatism over philosophy. Brian still questions, even 12 years later, whether or not those contributions had much of an impact. Did that have much of an impact? Um, I know I left behind a lot of um, folks with a greater awareness of where open source and open standards were really intertwined and could be mutually assistive. Uh, and, uh, um, and I actually think some of what we did was a different approach to public-private partnerships uh, around shipping code, not just uh, you know white papers and good intentions, good vibes. Um, and so pretty proud of the time I spent there. But uh, I, you know, I, I spent my two years in DC and I think everyone should, uh, either there or Sacramento or some other state capital or other, some other national government. But if more people in tech you know, put even a portion of their career into helping government, um, we'd all be a bunch better off. After working in D.C. for two years, Bellendorf spent the next two years as the CTO of the World Economic Forum, partly out of a sense of civic service, partly to support a cause he'd been close to. It was an opportunity to talk to policymakers, talk to other different kinds of business leaders about the power of open source, the power of open technologies in general, even using the web as a base for an industry cooperation and collaboration. As he tells it, you know, industry coordination point of view. Um, and so I got to spend half my time doing that, the other half trying to get the, the organization off of Lotus Notes, which I almost succeeded in doing before I left. He spent time trying to figure out where he wanted to land. Cryptocurrency was raising its Hydra head at the time. In 2015 and 2016, the market started to explode. That was when the Ethereum initial coin offering happened. That was when Bitcoin jumped in value. There was a bit of formal recognition, but also a lot of concern, even by today's standards. As he thought through it, Brian settled on... And where I settled was, well, if we can find places where there's utility value to the use of these technologies, where it's solving a real problem for companies, large or small, 
while at the same time providing greater resilience uh, that, you know, many people rightfully are worried about the concentration of power in, um, in, in the technology world. Uh, if this was an antidote to that, it perhaps even something that countered what's felt like just an overwhelming natural trend towards consolidation in technology. It's always easier to build a bigger database than to have lots of smaller databases, right? Always easier to have a big uh, central shopping website than to have a hundred shopping websites with some interoperable shopping cart across them, right? Uh, um, maybe this was finally a counter, a framework for being able to counter that, that centralization um, uh, tendency. As he thought through the issues, he realized there were approaches that did not require proof of work. He observed that people were actually amenable to a governance model that was partly digital and partly human. Around that time, he saw an announcement from the Linux Foundation talking about something called Hyperledger. Uh, something called Hyperledger. Uh, and Hyperledger hit a lot of marks for me. One is obviously Linux Foundation and open source. Uh, one was the set of organizations around it. It wasn't just kind of IBM and, and some other technology companies. It was also um, banks. It was, uh, uh, you know, folks like Deutsche Börse at, uh, uh, in Germany, you know, representing kind of the, the financial heavyweights. It was also people such as the Blythe Masters of J.P. Morgan Chase and later with Digital Asset Holdings. Watching all this come into play, Brian decided to email Jim Zemlin, Executive Director of the Linux Foundation, to hear more about the project. Zemlin told him they were looking uh, for somebody to run the Hyperledger project. Uh, uh, so I, uh, um, so yeah, so I jumped in and really liked the community, really liked the, the the technology and the kinds of problems it could solve, and it was futuristic enough that I felt like hey, this is this is an interesting place to hang my hat and see what happens. Well, I first met Jim Zemlin long before he even joined up with uh, the Linux Foundation. Um, uh, uh, he was, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name of the company, Covalent. He worked with Covalent. He was kind of on the business development team there um, and like, liked him there. I, 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 it was always kind of weird to me in those early days where we had built you know, the Apache Software Foundation, I could see it happening with Python, obviously the Free Software Foundation, but the Linux project still seemed a little adrift. Um, you know, Linus himself uh, went from Finnish college student to working at a chip design company called Transmeta. Um, I forget what other steps he had, but there's always this much greater risk because he was very much more central to the Linux kernel development than others. Um, I, 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 you know, then, then, then say Larry was to Perl or, or um, Guido von Rosen was to Python uh, or any of us were to Apache. So um, there's always a little bit of risk that whoever he worked for would have even some implicit kind of, you know, finger on the, on the scales uh, when it came to the direction of the project. Um, and, and around the same time, there was a, an effort started called the Linux Standards Base, which was trying to standardize how the different software distributions worked uh, and uh, some folks trying to, to figure out how to piece that together. But it was still very anemic uh, and still very challenging. And then um, I think it was early 2004 when uh, Jim uh, jumped in to basically save this Linux Standards Base initiative, which um, was then rebranded, I believe, as the the Linux Foundation. So I, I kind of kept tabs on all those times and and knew knew Jim socially and and I, I was rooting for them. I realized look, the Linux ecosystem was much more quickly than the other open source projects the domain of Big Iron, 
Uh, and by that, I mean, even in 2001, I believe it was, uh, 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 IBM was running Super Bowl ads, uh, pointing to uh, uh, this, you know, blonde haired kid in the corner uh, who seems like the, 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 um, the genius, you know, uh, boy, one, boy wonder whose name is Lennox. Right. Uh, and uh, um, very quickly, I could see it was uh, 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 there was a need there um, to manage these these giant companies and organizations who cared quite a bit about the trademark, cared quite a bit about the development of the of the of the code and the processes there. And the and and as a code base, it's it's huge. It's even at that point, millions of lines of code today, tens of millions, I believe. Um, uh, and and so there is a rigor there that I, I, I just I, I was. Uh, intrigued by, but but very much as an outsider, um, and and Jim grew that uh, and managed that community and employed Linus directly, keeping him from having to be snapped up uh, by somebody else, you know, uh, uh, and uh, um, and just enough the infrastructure to to help the Linux ecosystem and not be trapped by one vendor. A tremendous amount of work, something I admired from afar. Almost kind of said, I don't want that job because that looks really hard, <laughs> uh, and what I'm doing, you know, looks looks easier and more fun. But uh, um, I. I uh, but but yeah, that was about the time when uh, the, as the Linux Foundation started to rise. Um, so that that's that's been my experience with it. And then it was many years later that I finally said, "Oh yeah, why not join?" On May nineteenth, two thousand sixteen, Brian was appointed executive director of the Hyperledger project. The tech world's attention was focused on cryptocurrencies in 2016. When you said the word blockchain, people thought Bitcoin. It's still largely the case. The perception was that it was a gold rush, with everyone trying to provide picks and shovels for gold rush miners. The framing for Hyperledger was... But, uh, but a lot of Hyperledger, the framing for it was about Here's how to use distributed ledger technology and smart contract automation to automate the process and, and, and provide greater accountability to the systems of the world. The Hyperledger Foundation is a nonprofit organization that brings together all the necessary resources and infrastructure to ensure thriving and stable ecosystems around open source software blockchain projects. That's the formal explanation on the Hyperledger site. The way that whole industries track transactions, the way that they track the flow of goods in a way that introduces trust. It introduces data that can be verifiable in a way that is otherwise a lot harder to do. It picks up both specific technologies and inspiration from the cryptocurrency community, but also distinguishes itself quite a bit. I, I distinguishes itself quite a bit. There's no token at the heart of, of Hyperledger. You can build token-oriented systems with the technology, but you don't need one in order to implement a traceability uh, platform for diamonds in the diamond supply chain, for example. Um, and so one of the challenges we had in launching that was um, not just a lack of understanding uh, by people out there of, that there is this distinction between blockchain technology and Bitcoin, um, uh, but also that uh, I, um, there was there was a there was actually a useful function served by by deploying these technologies. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the, the 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 cryptocurrency community was livid at the existence of Hyperledger because we were demonstrating that you could accomplish many of the things that they 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 talked about as like the advantages of uh, the kinds of things you could do with it with 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 their technology, but without 
having to buy their tokens without having to burn all this energy without having to to you know to buy into their worldview about about you know uh certain other things so um so we found ourselves somewhat squeezed uh, between these two large uh kind of kind of worldviews one was um uh why in the world do you need this in the first place it sounds complicated sounds like you could just solve this with a central big database rather than a federated coordinated uh blockchain network distributed ledger network um uh and and uh you know, on the one hand, it was like, why do you need this at all? At the other hand, it was like, you haven't gone far enough. You aren't uh, as cool as, as all the cryptocurrency stuff because no one can invest in you. No one can buy your token or buy your ICO or that kind of thing. And, 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 and you're just, you're just behind and have fun staying poor, right. Is the, is the refrain that you hear from uh, um, cryptocurrency advocates who about, about skeptics. So I, uh, uh, so that was really hard. And I think I, uh, uh, in, what we what we set up in in the hyperledger community was not just here's the processes to support the community's writing code uh here's ways to get out there through our membership and also with with me going out very much as the nerd diplomat to explain here are the here's what people can do with it here and eventually as they started to merge here's what people are doing with the technology uh here's why it is a simpler approach than simply you know, like if you think of the diamond supply chain, uh, if you parked the central database to track, you know, for every diamond out there, the, the chain of custody from the mine it came out of to the person who has it, you know, is wearing it on their finger, that would be a tremendous privacy, you know, risk, uh, but also operationally, what happens when that central thing gets hacked? What happens when the company behind that central database goes down? You know, all these kinds of issues that through a distributed ledger, uh, you just you don't have you this the, the distributed ledger is a unique solution to a whole category of problems that traditionally we haven't solved before. The distributed ledger is a unique solution to a whole category of problems that traditionally haven't been solved. The answer to fighting that skepticism was to tell the hyperledger story, not just through better code and through better community, but also through content thought leadership. This takes engaging at conferences well beyond the traditional open source conferences. It takes talking to a reporter with a publication such as The Economist or The New York Times, trying to get beyond the perception that this is just open source code. It's persisting with the thought that it takes whole industries to solve traceability and trust problems at scale. Um, it's frankly the only way that you could build a marketplace for carbon emissions that was global. You know, no one's going to trust a carbon emissions central tracker being run by the UN or IPCC or, or any one country in particular. So there's a communication challenge uh, challenge with that. And, and that's a challenge, I think, every open source project that operates somewhat at the leading edge of, um, of usage, you know, where you're, it's high concept, it's it's a it's a new disruptive kind of place, um, has that communication challenge. Uh, and very rarely are the open source developers who are working in the middle of that equipped and resourced and able to spend the time to go out and, and project, here's why that new domain is so cool. Brian has an internal drive for new things, whether it's for the novelty of it or for finding places to take a set of skills and background to adapt them to something new. After five years of working on Hyperledger, it was time to pass the baton on to Daniela Barboza, Managing Director for All Things Blockchain, Healthcare, and Identity at the Linux Foundation. 
and 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 I'd shared with Jen like I'm I'm a little bit kind of eager to figure out what's next, but I but but also I didn't want to appear disloyal. And at the same time, he was uh, really sharing with me his struggles on uh, recruiting for uh, the open this new project called Open SSF. Open SSF got its start just before the pandemic hit, as people started to realize there was an overlap with a set of activities and organizations on GitHub that was centered around Google. OpenSSF was seen as a blend of these activities, but without an explicit ask for funding. It was more of a tone of, can the Linux Foundation be a home for these kind of conversations? A motivated set of people emerged to become leaders in the OpenSSF community and to get things done based upon those conversations. By the middle of 2021, the volunteer work mapped out into six different working groups on everything from training and education to tooling, to figuring out how to better do coordinated vulnerability disclosures. A core question was, why does the open source community have these challenges? With open source code, why is it that we get surprised by a log4j or by uh, uh, some other critically important but overlooked component? Um, and and secondarily, but perhaps just as important, you know, how is it that attacks on the software supply chain? Uh, have really uh, grown and emerged? Uh, why are we seeing them today? Uh, and <clears throat> does addressing them need a new kind of systematic response uh, uh, that is open source ecosystem-wide and not just a matter of you know fixing GitHub or fixing NPM or fixing Maven Central or something? This all came to a head one night in the summer of 2021 with a recognition that there is a lot that could be done by volunteers, a lot that can be done in an unfunded way, but there are real costs associated with not addressing the problem. Uh, we went around and kind of did what the Linux Foundation is really good at, which is saying, given a scope, let's uh, fund a program office to go and turbocharge these existing activities and be able to put funds towards some specific things that those projects have identified as worthy recipients of those funds, um, either outside of OpenSSF, even outside of the LF, you know, to help fund improvements into core infrastructure, core libraries, or maybe things that we can do within OpenSSF on a full-time basis with staff, with funding to build better services, better, better content, that kind of thing. OpenSSF raised over $11 million in commitments over the fall of 2021. Commitments came from those who are today leading in the open source space, Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, as well as financial service companies such as Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, and Citi. With that as a baseline to start, OpenSSF was determined to create a compelling offer for users of open source code as well as developers who create it to come and be part of the so, project. Uh, in uh, October of 2021, announced both the level up of the community to one that you know uh, had raised a fun some funds and raised some, just enough infrastructure to decide how to how to fan that out and spend that in an effective way. Uh, and that's when I jumped uh, uh, over to join. It was a challenge to try to assure that all the core companies, because the desire was to go beyond the Googles, Amazons, and Microsofts, but also engage the GitHubs, the GitLabs, the Sonatypes. The big challenge was how to be assured that OpenSSF would remain relevant, how to make sure it was not just high concept and ambitious, but also pragmatic enough and have the partnerships in place to actually have a rolling impact in many different ways. 
Um, that's what we spent a lot of 2021 doing. And since the beginning of the year, it's been about operationalizing now, hiring, um, putting plans in place, um, uh, as well as uh, engagement now, even far beyond our own industry with folks in government, um, folks in the, in the nonprofit sector, others to talk about this is a critical infrastructure story. The perception from the outside was that the Open SSF project had immediate traction. Besides getting millions of dollars in funding, it was having conversations with the White House. It was having meetings that are defining what a, a source or an SBOM standard will be. It was impressive to see Only for a project because, uh, that was the, in its the, infancy. The, the immediate enablement of the Linux Foundation's investments, actually even historic investments into software. So, you know, what helped, for example, was last year there was an executive order 14028 from the White House mandating the adoption of software bill of materials across uh, industry and specifying that by August of 2022, this year in just a few months, uh, anybody who delivers a software system to the executive branch, to the federal government, has to deliver a software bill of materials that describes what's inside. Very much like you know any food that you buy, packaged food you buy at the supermarket <laughs> has a, an ingredients list and a nutritional value uh, chart, right? Um, uh, and so you know with that. That is part of the context and the mandate, and then some sub subsequent executive orders and other other public messaging from other governments, and 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 then along came Solar Winds, and then along came Log4j, uh, and um, certainly we're not trying to be opportunists riding on the back of you know am ambulance chasing opportunists, but um, those two breaches did emphasize the importance of solving this in a systematic way. We're eager to actually put more resources into is better tooling around software bill of materials, particularly around the SPDX standard, um, which uh, would make a very light lift for all software developers to enable in their make files, in their build systems, the generation of SBOM files. And, and importantly and interestingly, the consumption of those SBOM files as a piece of software pulls in a dependency how do you pass through the SBOM of that underlying dependency up a level so that when you understand what is the overall SBOM for this package, you understand that there's these subsidiary SBOMs and where they're at. Now, part of answering the question of how do you actually use SBOMs to make the world more secure, it's got to be by automating the, their generation, automating the situational awareness you get when you've got a whole mess of code you know, in a package or in your enterprise and understanding where things are used. Um, and there's all sorts of places where the private sector and, and commercial software companies make a ton of sense to build better tooling for audits, better tooling for um, uh, visualization of risk in your infrastructure, all this kind of thing. We can't boil the ocean and do all that, but we can at least make sure that the, the, the there's enough standardization at the lower levels and enough automation. I mean, I would really like to see us get to the point inside of a few years where open source projects just by default uh, and, and where the vast majority of the, the ones that already exist are generating SBOMs, are consuming them from, from their dependencies um, and using them actually as a way to not just publish what's inside, but also perform some validity checks, figuring out where to really put trust and auditability and verifiability into the SBOM story is a key part of um, justifying the value of doing this. When it comes to the midterm vision for open SSF over the next year to three years, Brian is focused on several efforts that have to do with metrics and understanding the risk inherent in a piece of software or in the team that developed that piece of software. Specifically, there's several efforts at OpenSSF that have to do with metrics, that have to do with um, understanding the risk inherent in the piece of software or in the team that developed that piece of software. 
the best practices badge, something called security scorecards. Uh, uh, we are also collecting uh, from everywhere we can find uh, examples of where people have done third-party audits of open source code. Like we'd like to get a copy of those audit reports and, and understand what remediations were performed uh, in response to those, maybe start to standardize those reports in a way. Uh, all with the idea of trying to get, uh, develop in the long term a dashboard. And it's either something we'll run at OpenSSF, it might be something the Linux Foundation provides. In fact, there already is a portal called metrics.opensf.org that people can go to. Um, and the idea should be, the issue in the long term should be if you are a consumer of open source code, which everyone is, you just don't realize it. If you, you know, but if you're, especially if you're building an app and you're invoking, you know, a set of dependencies, you're pulling in uh, a framework, you are packaging things up with a certain tool, you'll have options, and you should be able to look somewhere very easily and understand. You know, it's you, you know how to tell which which option has the features you need, perhaps which one, perhaps you can tell which one has the community support uh, and responsiveness that you'd prefer. I know I I will choose certain lesser capable pieces of software uh, if I feel like the community behind them is better. It's one reason why it was use, a user of FreeBSD for so long <laughs> was I really liked the community around FreeBSD um, more than I liked the community around Linux. Uh, uh, but, uh, um, uh, but, the, but the thing that's really missing is an easy tool for uh, developers to use to judge the trustworthiness and the and the risk uh, uh, involved with software um, uh, and a way to objectively measure that. And so, we have got with the best practices badge and these security scorecards and others, some tooling that's mostly automated to try to give paint that picture of if you had to choose a Java logging framework, which of the three or four options you might choose has a, has a better risk profile. Um, and so hopefully we can bend consumer behavior by, by publishing something like that. Um, uh, and maybe we can also bend producer behavior uh, by, by you know, companies that are open source projects that want to attract more users if they can score better on these metrics and rise up in, in uh, appearance, that's probably a good idea. And so weaving these ideas into the kinds of interfaces that people use when they select that software, maybe it's the interface to the package managers like NPM and Maven Central and others. Maybe it's in the IDEs themselves when you're going and sitting there and doing hash include something like, you know, how do you find, you know, wherever the developer is making that decision, whether as, as explicitly or implicitly, how do you insert in that? Here's the more trustworthy package versus the other. Um, uh, I think that's going to be key to actually bending all sorts of behaviors in the right direction. Today's episode was brought to you by the OpenSSF Project and the Linux Foundation. Thank you to the team at the Linux Foundation for making this show possible. The Untold Stories of Open Source is created with support from Melissa Schmidt, Chip Stewart, James McLeod, Jim Zemlin, Derek Weeks, and the entire team at the OpenSSF Project. You can find resources for this episode on our GitHub page. This was the Untold Stories of Open Source. If you like what you heard, follow our GitHub Project where you can get the most recent episodes and put in requests for future stories. Until next time, thank you for your support and contributions to the open source community. Thank you.